let's go back to a few months ago when the whole pandemic started. Mm. Uh, Felt like a long time ago. <laughs> it feels like that, right? Um, so um, for weeks before you actually shut schools and, and move to full-time uh, uh, home-based learning, uh, there were already calls to close schools earlier on because parents were worried that their kids will get um, infected and so on. And many other countries had already shut schools immediately once the infection mm. started, the infection cases started to rise. Uh, now on hindsight, how do you feel about the decision you made at, you made at the time? The, the, worry, the worry of parents, uh, most understandable. Mm -hmm. The reaction, the responses of countries uh, are also understandable. I, I can imagine places in Europe or, or America where they have been dealing with seasonal flu and seasonal flu do affect children more and children become a vector for transmission. So to them, in their, in their rule book, actually schools are one of the first places to close. So I think they were following their rule book, which is also understandable. Right. In our case, we don't have that experience. Our experience was SARS, where we did not close schools actually. We closed yeah. for maybe 10 days, mm -hmm. more to get systems up, uh, children to be distributed with uh, thermometers, um, processes to be put in place. So our experience is different. And on hindsight, there were a lot of calls, petitions sent to me every day. Yeah. <laughs> on hindsight, I'm glad we didn't close school. Okay. Yeah, and because on a few things. One of the key reasons was um, the findings and, and evidence coming from other countries, particularly China, mm. that the effects and that the virus can infect children, but to a lesser extent. And uh, the effects on children are also lesser. And those were the initial evidence coming out of China. Today, nobody argues about that anymore. Mm. I think the evidence is all over the world now. And so on that basis, if we take enough precautions, we can save the school year. Because the downside of closing school is tremendous. Yeah. Uh, so today you look at the facts. Um, touch wood, we still don't have a school-based transmission. We don't have, I hope we can keep it that way, although it may be hard if COVID is going to be around for a couple of years. But we'll try our best. Uh, school, uh, school students who are infected either get it overseas or they get it from home. A few are unlinked still. But we have not registered one from school. So I think it's possible with the right measures, we can keep school safe while allowing lessons and learning to continue in the physical environment. You talked about the downside <coughs> of uh, shutting down schools. Um, what, what are you referring to? Learning loss specifically? Learning loss because to a parent or to a student, uh, it may just occur to them that this is, oh, I lost learning curriculum. Yeah, but it's deeper than that, no? to lose a school year. And some of the countries have not opened schools since the beginning of the year. You're really looking at a generation, possibly a generation loss, losing that period of education, that structured environment where there are friends, there are teachers, there's emotional support, and lose all that. 
during this period where I get a lot of calls and at the peak I get a couple hundred emails, uh, PMs a day at the, at the peak. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and they're all about close school, close school, close school. I do scan through them, especially those that send directly to me. But there will be one or two that tell minister, don't close school. And one who wrote to me in Chinese register especially strongly. She's probably uh, an adult already. I think she's doing her own business. She say, uh, my career now is well, you close school uh, affects me. I suppose she might be a coach or something, I don't know. But she said, don't close school. She said, I was a student, not a very good one, during SARS. That, that year, 10 days of school closure. She's supposed to stay at home. She couldn't stay at home. She went out with her friends. She mixed around with bad company. And she said, my life changed. And then I was dropped out. And she dropped out. And she changed her life. But slowly she fought back. Mm. And now she's, she's well again, she said. Uh, but it took her many years. Uh, so she said, don't underestimate that, that little bit of school closure. It, it can change yeah. a person's life, especially if they are from a vulnerable background. Right. Yeah. Okay, they are the ones most affected. Um, you know, um, what now, again, looking back, what do you think were some of the lessons learned, uh, you know, from the messiness of adapting uh, to this crisis? Yeah, messiness, all right. <laughs> That's yeah, right. I mean, schools had to move quite quickly, and teachers, right, had to move quite quickly to providing uh, lessons online and yeah. making sure that, you know, effective and then at the same time having to cater to uh, children who needed to go back to the school and so on. So what were some of the lessons learned uh, in, in the education by educators that, and that, policy makers uh, like yourself? In policy making and decision making, is, uh, you need to find that overlap between science and the facts, between what you can deliver and what parents and the public can accept. And what is that? <laughs> Get common ground. And that's where you have to make your decision. Uh, you can have all the facts and you can deliver, you're totally convinced what you can do, but you know, parents don't, don't buy it, you can't do it. And vice versa, whichever way you permutate, all three must be aligned. So I suppose that's one thing I learned. Yeah. And every few days you have to make one of those decisions. Yeah. Right. What are the gaps that became apparent? Um, a lot of people say, for example, um, the digital divide, um, the pandemic kind of, I mean, we've known about it all this while and schools mm. have actually been helping yeah. kids close the gap, but the pandemic somehow shone this spotlight on, on well, many the of the issues. the pandemic showed that many things are half full or half empty, depending on how you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. So digital divide is one. one. Yeah. On one hand, we are quite glad that we have developed the SLS over the last few years, so mm -hmm. we can switch to home-based learning. We are also quite glad that we know there is a digital divide, so we actually stock up on digital devices. So we have more than enough to loan out to whoever needs it. And it was a case of, who else needed it? Please come. <laughs> mm. 
But we always hear people who don't have it, yeah. and somehow they didn't know they can get one from school, or they didn't want the one from school for some reason. Yeah. But actually, we have more than enough to loan now. So on one hand, that's half full. Mm. On the other hand, it's half empty because what? Why, why aren't they having one? <laughs> mm -hmm. Why do we wait yeah. till now to loan it to them? You know, yeah. during peacetime yeah. we could have done something, right? Yeah. So it depends. Uh, the, depending on how you want to look at it, I, I tend to want to look at things from half full basis. Then you get something else to do. Right. Yeah. You, for example, DSA is mm. another example. Mm. On one hand, we are glad that we set up this whole system of interview and able to access mm. Mm. a person a bit more holistically. And right. we did a big DSA review that's no yeah. longer based on academic results. Right. And so because of that, I think DSA, we have the mechanisms and the mm. interview assessment mechanisms to allow it to continue, even with suspension of schools. Right. On the other hand, we thought about how come we are still selecting SEC1 DSA through timings and medals and these are 12 year olds you know mm. shouldn't we have moved earlier right yeah so again it's half full or half empty but i like right. to think about all this positively that's the, mm. that the pandemic showed what are the good things that fortunately we have done mm -hmm. but it also pushed us to say we can actually do faster we right. can do more yeah. with regards to home-based learning right so um, they're saying that um, online education before the pandemic was optional, mm. but now it looks like it's fundamental to learning really mm. and really to the future it will be fundamental. Do you agree with that and has the pandemic shown us uh, what is the upside of online learning, the advantages to be gained uh, and about making it part and parcel of the education that students receive. Yeah, so we will make home-based learning part and parcel, maybe once a fortnight for mm -hmm. secondary school, mm -hmm. uh, primary school too. Um, can start with that. Um, but that is a formality, right? Online learning, you, you use yeah. the word online education, like there's right. a certain formality that is right. formal classes. Right. But online yeah. learning, Right. It's a reality. Mm. It's already a reality. You can deny that it's not there, only classroom. It, it's not. We right. learn so much right. from the internet, from Googling, from just right. finding out information. So it's just that reality already surpassed us. Mm. So sooner or later, the formal education system will have to adapt it, uh, uh, accept it and embrace it. And we have done so through SLS, and we had some plans to have a national digital literacy program. Right. So again, it's one of these things where the pandemic accelerated that whole process and helped us open up a bit more perspective to say, actually, we can do more no? or do better. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why we are planning on this integrating home-based learning into the formal curriculum. I think it's quite worthwhile. You asked what, mm -hmm. what is the benefit? Yeah. If I simplify, it's just one, just one, independent learning. Okay. Yeah, because you're on your own, no peer pressure, no classmates, mm -hmm. teacher is away. You're on your own. They may be online as a right. resource, especially the teacher, but you're pretty much exercising independent, curiosity-driven learning. And it, if you do it frequently enough, mm -hmm. I believe 
you, we, have a more we have a higher chance of inculcating that as a habit in our children. Because they will need that habit for the rest of their life. Would you say it's one of the most important life skills yes, that we have to... Yes, identify as one of the 21 CC that we've been pushing for a long time. But it's quite hard to say how do I teach curiosity yeah. <laughs> and independent learning, right? Yeah. yeah. But I think the pandemic forces us to say, yeah, it's actually just one way. Right. Leave the kid alone. Give them a structure. You can't leave right. them totally alone. Right. Give them a structure. Give them a little bit of parameters. Mm -hmm. Help them build that habit. Okay. You've been visiting schools during this pandemic to look at how they conduct home-based learning. And yeah, even what have they especially learned? during circuit yeah. breaker. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what's the feedback you've gotten from uh, <coughs> teachers? You know? So our approach is this. For the students from vulnerable families, mm -hmm. schools were never close to them. Right. They can always come back. It's yeah. whether they want to. So I, I took that opportunity to visit them. And each, each visit, I get 20 students only in school. But what luxury, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so when I speak to them, most of them were, I will ask them, how is it? And most will tell me, this one better. <laughs> and, and when I ask why better, they always gave the same answer. They say, I got time. Mm -hmm. I got time. No peer pressure. And often the teacher is online. Mm -hmm. So there's no, nothing malu about it. No, I can ask any question I want. Right. Nobody will judge me. And the teacher will explain. Right. So I think they find that important. But that is independent learning. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there's something important there. Teachers oh. recognize that too. Mm. Yeah. So that's why teachers feedback to me. Many yeah. of the absentees yeah. actually have very high attendance online. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So preference for the online mode of learning. Okay. Yeah. I would say yes and no. Yeah. Yes, when I first visited the schools and speak to the students, but towards the end of Circuit Breaker, right. you can also tell they want to come back. they're tired. They want to come back. They need their friends. They right. need to see their chairs. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So would you, would you say that in, in the years to come, you'd see a lot more online learning uh, in schools? There will be more than now, okay. but there has to be a balance. Okay. The, I was on... I was on the OECD Zoom call. Mm. Andreas Schleicher was there. Mm. Different, different countries presented their experiences. And unions, teacher unions were involved. So I didn't realize, I take for granted that our union relationship is so harmonious. In other countries, you can see the minister and the union at yeah. loggerheads, you know. Yeah. And this time round, the issue was around online learning because right. it affects the relevance of the teacher. Right. Yeah, so you, you can feel there's a constituent that say, say that you know, online learning is the way to go. We don't need so many teachers. And then the union is saying that online learning is rubbish. You must have the teacher. Someone, uh, one delegate from a country make a very good intervention to say you must have humility you know, when you encounter something like that. Mm -hmm. Humility to accept that online learning is useful. There is something useful, but also the humility to accept 
that you can't do away and substitute classroom learning altogether. We have to meet face to face, especially values transmission, especially with regard to learning something that uses your hands, project work discussions, all this you cannot substitute. So you need a blend, don't take an extreme position. Right. As you mm. say, <coughs> education is still a social, very much a Absolutely. social process. Absolutely. <laughs> right. You can't replace that. Um, but of course, there, there are downsides to online learning. And for, for kids, the worry, of course, about increased screen time and everything that comes with it, mm. including cyberbullying, right? The rates mm. do go up. Uh, how will ma uh, schools manage this, hmm. uh, even as they do more of home-based learning? So I will rephrase that question a bit, or reframe it. Yeah. I think there's a downside to too much device usage. Okay. Because that's where right. all the bad things happen. You go to right. undesirable websites, or cyberbullying and so that, right. and all that. So therefore, device usage must be filled with more wholesome activities, okay. one of which is online learning. So I think rather than, I think first accept that most kids out there have their own devices mm. and they are literally left with their own devices, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> so if we already accept that and yeah. accept that all these bad things are happening, yeah. why don't we counter it by filling it up with something positive, right. which is online learning and we're going to teach it in school. Uh, which is what I announced earlier this year, mm -hmm. that whole piece, which is what we call CCE, Citizenship and Character Education, mm -hmm. I think is getting more and more important, right. especially lower primary. Now, this is the space where we need to teach students uh, moral education, digital literacy, cyber wellness, their mental wellness, you know, and these days probably personal hygiene, financial literacy, knowing about money, how to spend, how to have budget, how to save, and all these things I think we got to put in place because these are fundamental skills they need for, for life. No? Right. Mm. Um, going back to the, the gaps that the pandemic uh, shone a light on, um, we talked about digital divide, but I think it also showed up uh, other divides uh, or, or how kids from lower uh, or disadvantaged homes, mm. you know, uh, were faced with other problems. Mm. Um, can you uh, touch on those? Like, for example, there were some who were actually depending on the schools for meals. Yes. You know, and MOE did a good thing in uh, yeah. Yeah, putting... Uh, their meal subsidy money ST into pocket their money fund. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very you proud did, of you, that. You all did not need much persuasion. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we, I just we, asked my we, staff to go and ask ST pocket money. Yeah, yeah. And straight away, within an hour, they say yes. You yes, say yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I mean, uh, I still thank Brema for starting that. It was her idea. Oh, actually. is that so? Yeah, Brema Mati. I see. Yeah, so, you know, what about the other gaps that this pandemic has yeah. kind of exposed so, and yeah, so there are what many. must be done about but it? But I think, first of all, is I, I'm, quite, I'm quite glad that yeah. this pandemic show is that you have a, a strong public system, which is the mm -hmm. education system. Right. And over the years, many people have doubts about this system. Mm. This system breeds inequality, it breeds mm -hmm. elitism, it is the reason for 
inequality even, right? Mm. And it entrenches the privilege. Then you, you get all these views yeah. mm -hmm. until the system was forced to close down. Mm. Then I think people realize that it is a great leveler. Right. On balance, some of these things may have some basis, but mm -hmm. on balance, it is that great leveler. Because when it's gone, you look at what happened to the poor. Right. They don't have their meals, you know. Uh, and so I, I think we, I'm comforted that this was the main observation of most right. people. So now without schools, how do we help them? Right. Uh, so we got ST Pocket Money Fund. Uh, some self-help groups came in. Uh, you, we can't give them. It is against one of those things we ought to improve. So, mm. <clears throat> so simple thing like meals. They can't come to the school for meals. So we mm. say invite them to come. Mm. Not all want to come back. Some right. came back. Others don't want to come back. We say got ice cream. You no, know? somebody sponsor. We buy ice cream too. So some come back. Not all come back. So yeah. some are still at home. So what's the best thing to do? We buy them meals. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so therefore, the best way is give them money. They'll mm. go and buy. So for MOE, the way we give money is top up their EasyLink card, which right. they use yeah. to purchase canteen food. But mm. today, EasyLink card, what can you use to buy? You know, not yeah. many things out there. Most right. people out there don't use EasyLink card for payment. Mm. Yeah. So we say, go to ST Pocket Money Fund. We give cash. Okay, so we top up cash. Then we realize thirty percent of them don't have bank accounts. Yeah, <laughs> right. So I think that's another revelation that right. if you want to help, actually, digital divide is one. Mm -hmm. Financial divide is another. Financial literacy divide is another. Mm -hmm. Financial inclusion is right. also a problem mm -hmm. alongside with digital inclusion. Right. Yeah which is why we quite quickly review this situation with MSF right. and MAS. MAS right. uh, is extremely supportive. And we say, try to catch all the students. Right. Uh, most, most majority actually have their own bank account by the time they reach primary school. Okay. But 30% don't. Wow, that's yeah. quite a high... Yeah, but so we are talking who, about P1. P1, okay. yeah. So... Uh. so we thought for this 30%, many of whom are lower income, have a safety net to catch mm. them. So that's why the idea came about, came from one of our officers, that mm. we always have a child development account. Yeah. As, we, as we set up the CDA, give them a CSA, a child savings account. Right. Automatic, you can opt out. You can opt okay. out. And it can come with pay now, sing pass, all the things that you need for digital inclusion. Right. That was MAS's great idea, which I thought mm. was great. Yeah. Okay. So I think we, we will try to operationalize it. So okay. I think we are looking at, not too long from now, mm -hmm. all P1 pupils will all have a bank account. Okay. Yeah. And we can give them assistance. If they win any awards, that's where the money can go into. Mm -hmm. And I think we then have to couple it with financial literacy lessons. Right. Because so far we teach... Uh, savings and spending within budget through paper money. You see. Mm. So you must have a little pouch open, got money, means today I save, I didn't spend everything, my money all gone, means I overspend. No? Yeah. In future, it's all on digital, so you must right. be able to look at digits and monitor right. my bank balance. You know? right. mm. Okay, so schools will be helping the kids yeah, we're and planning their parents. To. We're planning. I'm not sure about the parents, but at least the kid. Yeah. 
yeah. must learn uh, yeah. how to spend within right. means. Yeah, so I, you're right. I think uh, when I did the story of what schools are doing, you know, going beyond just mm. providing, uh, enabling them to come back, they actually were, you know, uh, par partnering uh, some charities to provide meals and yeah. groceries and yeah. food packs and, you know, all kinds of things, even helping some parents look for possible jobs, you know, within the community because of, from the advisory committee members and so on. Uh, yeah, so I think it kind of highlighted the work that schools do. It becomes a community centre. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It becomes like a community centre. Yeah. Yeah. But I, don't you think it's important for schools to play that role as well? Well, I'm Especially, absolutely proud of them. Yeah. Absolutely proud of them. And then the role of a teacher it's, right. it's, it's go way beyond the classroom. Right, yeah. right. Um, so, um, do you, going forward, do you see schools, uh, I mean, we already have uplift mm. uh, that incorporates some of these ideas. Mm. So, um, in, in crisis like this, do you still see schools playing this bigger role of uh, supporting uh, kids who come from a particular segment of Population. Even bigger mm -hmm. now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. As I was mentioning, it's only when schools are closed that you realize how much we take out of a kid who mm. is from a poorer background. Uh, so now that schools are reopened, I think it, it accentuates the sense of mission right. of many teachers that you, know, you played this role. You didn't yeah. know you were playing this role yeah. until you had to stop. Yeah. And you look at the consequences of you stopping. So, do you now realize how important your work is? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, let's move on to the universities. Yeah. So, you're going to announce um, this interdisciplinary courses um, that universities are going to look into providing. Um, actually, the schools have already been doing joint degrees, double degrees, um, kind of you know, interdisciplinary in nature. So what, what is it? How is this different? Mm. Um, mm. This is, again, a half-full, half-empty thing, right? Yeah. So fortunately, we've been doing all that. Right. And we've been doing all that because um, I think the institution... This is a worldwide trend, by the way. Right. Yeah, and you see yeah. new models like Minerva and others, mm. which is very interdisciplinary in, in right. nature. Um, I, I think that it's a worldwide trend going on for some time because mm -hmm. of the realization of the pace of change. Right. Yeah. So therefore, lifelong learning is needed right, to keep up with the pace of change. But lifelong learning is needed, but lifelong learning needs to be supported. Mm -hmm. We talk about school mm -hmm. and how children need to have independent learning as a lifelong skill. So likewise, at the tertiary level, we assume they already have those skills, independent mm. learning. So what right. they need is more versatility, a stronger, broader foundation. Because if lifelong learning is like building a tower up, mm -hmm. the higher you want to build it, the stronger your foundation needs to be. Yeah. And lifelong learning now necessitates that. Yeah. So more interdisciplinary learning is enough, far more than what we have today. Yeah. Okay. So how much more? The details are important. If we say double major, each major still needs 80 credits. Mm. 
Yeah, so that's 160 credits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need 120 to pass. So you need to take a lot more credits than yeah. what is needed for a single degree. So you then have to realize structurally we need to reduce the burden of the front loading mm -hmm. if you really want double major. So NUS right. took a very bold step. Instead mm -hmm. of 80 credits, I say 40-40. Mm -hmm. Two major, the 40 will cover the fundamentals. Okay. I add another 20 that synergizes the, the two majors into okay. a project or some, uh, some experience. And then you can graduate with two major. You are not as deep as the single major, mm. but you're versatile. Right. Yeah. And why is this important? Because you may need it. In the past, there's less likelihood that you need it. In future, okay. most likely <laughs> you need it. Yeah. So with regards to jobs, is it? With regards to jobs, learning new things, switching industry, applying your skill in a different way. Yeah. But we have to, it, it is, they, they have to be able to identify what are the pairings that mm. is most important. But besides that, I think I, I will leave it to their, they have a high level committee led by the board to look at this quite fundamentally. I suspect mm. another area they will look at is some form of uh, not liberal arts, but mm. broad interdisciplinary learning. I think that has a space as well. Today is mostly done out of Yale and US, but maybe mm -hmm. uh, they have a USP, the University, yeah. University Scholarship Program, also mm. has some of these modules. So they may need more students to go through some and of this broader, broad-based yeah, broad general education. Right. But what would you say to people who will say that you're making students um, jack of all trades and master of none. Mm, that is, if you think your learning stops there, your learning stops there, yeah, your jack of all trades, master of none, because your learning cannot stop there. Mm. That is only the start, that's the foundation. Then you build up your tower, you have to then figure out what do you want to specialize in. Then you may have to do a, a grad cert, a grad diploma, or masters, mm -hmm. or just certificate courses that deepen what you know. Proportion of students do you see eventually taking up these interdisciplinary courses? Um, I mm. mean, the, the majority now do general degrees. About uh, a quarter or a third or so. Okay. Sciences and arts and social sciences. If we add these two, mm. if we regard these two as the more general courses, right. I think it's about a third, maybe. Okay. Yeah. But I think it will be a spectrum, you know. Mm. So for those taking the liberal arts, sciences, FASS, HASS, this mm. may be a quarter. But then there's also, say, engineering, business. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I yeah. think they will also benefit from a broader exposure right. of different disciplines. And then you've got the professionals still, lawyers, doctors, nurses. They can also benefit from some exposure, even right. though they are quite single-minded in, in what they want to do already and they are training for a professional cert. Right. But I think there should be some space as well for them mm -hmm. to be exposed to other disciplines, which they will need too, right. I believe. So for example, an engineering student also taking up business um, as, as an interdisciplinary <coughs> course, how will that put him in a better position in terms of employability, you know, his development and growth in the future? So if you are an engineer running a plant and all you learn in universities uh, in university is are the skills associated with running the plant and keeping operations going, 
But now you also know inventory. Mm. Now you also know logistics, you know business, you know cash flow. Mm. I think it gives you a different perspective. Why am I doing this? And what am I contributing to, to the health of the mm. whole company? Right. And when I do this, I may have learned aesthetics. Mm. You know, I may have learned language, writing. And it just adds a bit of beauty to everything you do. Mm. Uh, it's like the Steve Jobs famous story that the calligraphy the calligraphy was yeah. and calligraphy was just I think tip of the iceberg but it's right. that entire it's sense of aesthetic you yeah. know that went into the design and the whole functionality um, I have a university related question I did a story recently mm. on the second admissions exercise uh, Quite a number of them were students who were heading overseas for first-year studies. And because of the pandemic and the disruptions, uh, a lot of them still don't know whether their universities will open for on-campus learning. Um, <clears throat> so they've, they have basically applied for local universities. Um, so uh, I wrote about some of the ap number of applications that was between 19 to... 550 in the case of SUTD. Um, so, um, we'll, we will reach 40% CPR as pledged by uh, the government this year. So, do you see uh, MOE providing more places uh, in the university this year? I mean, because we really we, we are faced with quite special circumstances mm -hmm. this year, right? If we really have a situation where students that were going overseas decide to not do so and yet they meet the admission criteria, mm -hmm. yes, we have to increase the okay. number of places, even if it means uh, going beyond 40%. Because the basis of 40% take into account of students going overseas, right? right. And now yeah. they are studying here, actually, yeah. is the outcome is the same. Right. I, I don't know the outcome yet. Okay. Uh, because many of these students who are going overseas, they will apply to local AUs anyway. Right. And they often accept anyway. Mm. Yeah. And then later, they will think about which overseas university they want to, and then they give up their seat and they go. Right. So right. I think we have not seen them making that decision yet. Right. So it's uh, only when they matriculate. Yeah. Right? I think when they matriculate them, or right. closer to matriculation, they probably will then make a decision. Right. So at that point in time, if we need to add more places, but provided they meet admission criteria, that, yes, that we course. have to. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, if we need to, I think we have to increase. We will increase. Okay. Mm. Another group is, of course, polytechnic upgraders, mm. uh, graduates, who had previously thought of going out to work, but because of the very weak job market that they're faced with and difficulties in finding a job, they have decided to... Uh, apply for a university place instead. Mm. So I'm told that's another big group, especially like yeah. in the case of SIT and SUSS, for example. So again, um, what is MOE's stand with regards to offering places to this group? My stand is if they meet their mission criteria, we should accept them. Right. But for the polytechnics, there are also other options now, mm. which include the work-study programs for post-dip yeah, so some of them may go that direction as well. Right. Yeah. So you're referring to the skills future degrees? Yeah. Or? yeah. Okay, but they still have to be admitted, right? By the yes. 
university. Work study is, is another pathway. Right. That one, there is no CPR, you see. Yeah. So you, the, basically, MOE will provide places if they, are, if they meet the admission criteria and are offered a place by the university yes. and, and we do to, want to take it up. We have to up. gauge how big is the demand. Yeah. Right. Mm. Okay. So um, originally, uh, MOE had told me that it was 17,000 places. Uh, that was the figure that was given. That, that's what they were planning for, to, mm. for that 40% mm. uh, CPE, uh, uh, CPR. Um, so you see it going beyond that if prop, um, it's needed. Okay. I don't know yet. Okay. We have released several hundreds first okay. for universities to absorb. Okay. Uh, let's see how was the utilization. As of okay. now, it's, it's difficult to tell. Right. because of the reason I mentioned. Once right. it's clear, I think it will definitely go beyond the several hundred that we have already released. Okay. Yeah. Whether it's 1,007, let's, let's see. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but essentially, the bottom line is CPR is not a concern right. in, in these circumstances because there's no difference. They will have gone overseas. If they meet, your, they meet our admission criteria, they, they should be given a place. Okay. Mm. okay, so I have some general questions I want to throw to you. Mm. Uh, with regards to the pandemic and uh, education. Sure. Um, so, of course, the, the saying that in every crisis there are opportunities, you know. Uh, how would you apply this to the pandemic crisis and education? Mm. First, I, I feel that statement is not a factual statement, but a state of mind. Okay. Yeah. You look at things half full or half empty. You look at the crisis, okay, it's crap. But yeah. what can I do about it? You know, what are some of the things that I couldn't do, but now because of the crisis, I can do? So to us, I am constantly looking out for such things. It mm -hmm. keeps everyone's spirit higher, right. that we can roll with the punches, yeah, and, and we can deal with this. So I, I, I've identified four areas that I announced. And right. these are after a lot of discussions within the university. I'm sure amongst our educators, our university and institution leaders, they will have other ideas. Right. Yeah. So closing the digital divide, bring forward by seven years, I think that's audacious enough and something we can do. We wouldn't have done it. No way. We were so worried. <laughs> And we're waiting yeah, to 2028, yeah, yeah, because acceptance level, skill level, but overnight, everyone went about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we say advanced, seven years. Uh, the whole issue about uh, inequality and uplift, mm -hmm. providing everyone with a bank account. Right. I think that, that will solve a lot of problems. Right. Interdisciplinary learning, we've been working on it, but now it's so obvious because after COVID, how how are industries competitive landscape going to be reshuffled? Is it your job? Is it still around, or do you have to do something else? Mm. Uh, those questions are, are there's a, there's a sh uh, put in there's a sharp focus on that issue now. Right. So now is the time to do it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, as a policy maker mm -hmm. uh, in education. Um, what has this whole uh, period taught you? What are the biggest lessons or takeaways for you? One, 
Yeah. You need to make decisions. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you what need do you to mean by that? You need to make the right decisions, yeah. Okay. Uh, and because during this crisis, the, the options become quite stuck, open or closed school, you know, right. things like that. Yeah. Uh, and you have to really be able to master the facts and understand um, how people feel, what your organization can deliver. I was mentioning the three concentric circles or three overlapping circles. Right. And you have to make a decision. Right. Two is the decision must be simple. No? Mm. The more I think about it, one key thing is because the considerations are complex mm. and if you make complex decisions because to, in response to a complex situation, mm -hmm. nobody understands. Mm. And when nobody understands, it's as good as no policy. You have to keep it so simple. Okay. As simple that's a as you can. Thing to do. It's not easy. Yeah. Often, all, all the decisions we made since the beginning of the year, they all start, the, the first version is always quite complex. Then you, you have always a couple of days, you sleep over it, you mm. test it with your children to say, I, I'm going to do this, do you understand? They look mm. at you and say, what are you talking about? That means something's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> then, then you slowly refine it. Yeah. 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 Just like a simple thing like when we went to uh, circuit breaker, extension of circuit breaker, right. that was after the first month, then we enter May, do we extend HPL or not? And then there were all kinds of permutations being, you know, civil servants do their work, option one, option two, option three, option four, you know, extend by one week, extend by two weeks, extend by four weeks, <laughs> or do blended or whatever. So in the end, say it's simple, move the holiday. Yeah, just move the holiday. People are tired. Yeah. People are break. Simple to understand. Explanation is, un is, is easy, which is also your key consideration. It has been, it has taken a toll on parents, on teachers, Maybe even on students, I don't know. But so let's just give everyone, everyone a break, break, move, and we don't lose school time. We right. don't lose curriculum time. So that was simple. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we were discussing how to thin out the school population, mm. which means there has to be some permutation and rotation. rotation. Some countries, Indonesia, is uh, speaking to the minister there, they're going to try to do three shifts. Yeah, wow. three shifts. <laughs> she said, teacher have to teach three times. Yeah, yeah. And others go two shifts. Others say we rotate by mm. day, by week, and okay. things like that. We considered right. all that. Mm. And I was so close to deciding that let's do a rotation by day. Yeah, Monday. Yeah. Maybe Monday P1 don't need to come. Yeah. Tuesday P2 don't need to come. Wednesday right. P3. When you, when you start thinking, so that sounds neat, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you think about what, what the bus uncle has to go through, mm -hmm. it's too complex. Mm -hmm. Who am I going to pick up on Thursday? Yeah. I'm not going to remember. Yeah. <laughs> if you have four kids, who's going to school? Who's not? <laughs> You're not going to remember. So we go by week. Yeah. And that was for simplicity more than anything right. else. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, and then the third, Explain, because if your decision is simple, your explanation can be simple. Mm. And I thought all these during a crisis makes a huge difference. Right. Decide simply, explain simply, as far as we can. Were there any? What was the biggest surprise for you? Uh, how how 
teachers overnight just came up with so many lesson plans. <laughs> I went to a... They adapted so well. So well, yeah. Uh, so well, so proud of them. Uh, when I went to a, a school and the teacher told me one whole year of nagging my teachers, please do more online lessons. We came out with 30 lessons, very proud. And then that one month, they came out with like 800. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, of course, including those they adapted from other schools. But sure. you, you, we saw a whole ecosystem right. coming up, which is why we became very confident that, that we can advance it by seven years because an ecosystem appeared. Right. Mm. Okay. Minister, can I just throw you a question about the elections? Is there one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, what time is it? Oh, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, as we speak. Um, just one question. Mm. Why does this election matter? Oh, we're in the middle of a crisis. Yeah. It might have slowed down, but we see in other countries there can be a second wave. And we can't rule that out, even if there isn't. The economic fallout is severe. So we're in the middle of a crisis, probably the biggest we have experienced as an independent country. And at the same time, our constitution requires that while this boat is in the middle of a storm, you need an election to choose the captain. So I think let's quickly choose the captain so we can quickly sail out of the storm. That's how important it is.